For some reason or another, this issue of climate change has emerged as a paramount issue for the left. Some reason. Survival of humanity. Why does the left care? Well, I don't know why I came here tonight. Mr. Vice President. I got the feeling that something ain't right. No, it ain't. I'm so scared in case I fall off my chair. And I'm wondering how I'll get down the stairs. Clowns to the left of me, jokers to the right. Here I am, stuck in the middle with you. Yep. Yes, I'm stuck in the middle with you. From Pacifica Radio in Los Angeles, this is the broadcast as heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in LA. In Oregon on 91.7 FM KYAQ on the Central Coast, 106.7 FM Queso in Cottage Grove. In Lancaster, Pennsylvania on 92.9 FM WLRI in Maui, Hawaii on 88.5 FM KAKU. In Columbus, Ohio on WGRN 94.1 FM in Palinville, New York on 102.9 FM WLPP. In Grand Rapids, Michigan on WPRR and in Minneapolis, St. Paul. On AM 950 KTNF. We're also heard streaming coast to coast and around the globe on the internet every day on the Progressive Voices Channel, Netroots Radio, Indie Media Weekly, FYI Nation, NicoleSandler.com, Radio Free Brooklyn, GDPR, Revolution 99, Detour Talk, Radio Monterey, and Radio Sputnik. Blanketing planet Earth five days a week. I'm Brad Friedman, your friendly investigative blogger, journalist, troublemaker, muckraker. An all-around swell fellow says me from bradblog.com. Thank you very much for joining us today for another thrilling action-packed adventure that we call the Bradcast. Coming up, the swamp is still just not draining. In fact, the, uh, the Trump administration continues to make it swampier than ever with a raft of waivers, ethics waivers issued by, um, or I should say, four administration officials and dozens of lobbyists that they've hired at the Trump administration to oversee the very same industries that they previously worked for and arguably still do as, uh, as administration officials even now. Craig Holman of Public Citizen will join us shortly to explain why and if any of it actually matters. In the meantime, uh, the fallout from the Paris climate decision on Thursday by Donald Trump is that continues. And frankly, it is amazing. The White House has been busy defending its decision today to pull out of that landmark U.N. Paris climate agreement. I must say, Desi Doyen, I don't know that I have seen any decision from this White House or any other be met with so much derision, be so roundly criticized and, and just derided from so many people and groups and countries on so many fronts. I don't ever remember seeing a response to really anything like this <laughs> Well, before. yeah, because it's not just now. It's not just condemnation coming from all corners of the United States. It's coming from all corners all of over the world. All over the world. Now, uh, Des, you watched the uh, the White House briefing today on this with uh, EPA administrator and uh, fossil fuel-sponsored Attorney General of Oklahoma, Scott Pruitt, uh, joining Sean Spicer to defend the administration's decision here. Uh, I almost hate to ask, but 
What the hell was his defense? Oh, it was basically the same defense that we've always heard him use, which is, oh, that this Paris Agreement is not a good deal for the United States. It's going to disadvantage us economically, which, of course, you know, we, we had a huge deep dive on it just a couple of days ago. Mm-hmm. But, yeah, we can debunk the fact that, no, it's actually very good for the United States. It creates a global framework for renewable energy and for transitioning away from fossil fuels. And it puts everybody on the same level playing field. It was entirely voluntary for mm-hmm. the United States. So those draconian, non-binding, voluntary targets, we could have changed at any time. Yes, he said in his speech, uh, he, he described yes. how the requirements here were both draconian and non-binding. And voluntary. voluntary. I mean, don't worry about that. Yeah, <laughs> so, you don't so- actually have to do them. But other than that, they're draconian. Exactly. Yeah, sorry, you know, so so Pruitt essentially tried again and again to pretend like this was something that was really bad for the United States, and they were really just interested in doing what was best for the United States, as if somehow it doesn't matter that the climate is is warming and seas are rising and our food supply is at risk and, and our people deadly... are dying. Exactly. Yeah. So Did... it was rather funny. Also, I just have to yeah. point out it was it was it was quite comical actually because several times both. Both Sean Spicer, the White House press secretary, Mm -hmm. and Scott Pruitt, the EPA administrator, several times they were asked by the White House press corps, so please just say yes or no, does Trump believe that climate change is a hoax? Just yes or no. And repeatedly they refused to answer. Uh, Yeah, Pruitt would say, well, you know, what we were talking about, I mean, he wouldn't even answer it. He said what we were talking about was, you know, what the the, the yes or no, what was good for uh, the United States and the Paris Agreement. And then finally Spicer at one point just said, I haven't asked him. So one of the White House correspondents said, okay, understood. Could you please ask him and have an answer for us before we meet again? And they he was asked uh, directly just a couple of days ago during a, a photo a photo op, a press avail, where I think some reporter asked him, are you uh, do you still believe climate change is a hoax? I think this was the day before he made his yes. announcement. And so do you still believe climate change is a hoax? And I think his response was pause, pause. Okay, thank you very much. Thanks, and that everybody. was it. So I guess <laughs> yeah. he still thinks it was a hoax because if he didn't, he would say no. Yeah. Um, in any event, uh, I, so, you know, we've been noting the condemnation both before and after the decision from all over the world. Uh, and the fact that the U.S. is now the, you know, is joining only civil war torn Syria and Nicaragua, who, who thought the agreement wasn't tough enough as the only nations in the world who are not a part of this agreement, uh, uh, this agreement. But it has been a really loud condemnation. It has brought, frankly, great shame and yeah. ignominy, I think, to the United States. It's hard to see how any of it makes America great again, even on Donald Trump's own terms, to be honest. Um, but uh, Vice President Mike Pence, nonetheless, he took to uh, he, he's been a, uh, a reliable defender of uh, Trump. He took to where else? Fox News to defend the move. Uh, I think this is Fox and Friends today uh, and suggested he just could not understand. He couldn't. It just just he couldn't figure out why the survival of humanity on planet Earth was such a big deal to those liberal left tree huggers, I guess. We've demonstrated real leadership. We've demonstrated real progress. But for for some reason or another, this issue of climate change has emerged as a paramount issue for the left 
in this country and around the world. And, and through Kyoto, through, through President Obama's cap and trade agenda, and then through the, in the last year of his administration to have America saddled in an international agreement with uh, leadership. in the Paris Accord, uh, I, I, think, uh, I think put a real burden on our economy and on our people. It was a bad deal for America. And as the president said so memorably yesterday, he was elected to represent Pittsburgh, not Paris. Yeah. Uh, and uh, I, I just have to tell you, it's, uh, I, it, it is so refreshing uh, to have a president who just stands without apology. Uh, for the American people, for the American economy, and for America's interests in the world first. Well, I don't know about you, but I, I feel refreshed. <laughs> um, so his, his comment there, you know, for some reason this has become a paramount issue for the left in the U.S. and around the world. It's not the left. No. It is every country on planet Earth other than Nicaragua, Syria, and now the United States. I mean, Angela Merkel is a center-right Conservative, at least, yeah, yeah. So uh, the comment there about uh, the, that Trump, echoing what uh, Trump had said in his announcement at the White House on Thursday that he was elected to represent the citizens of Paris. I'm sorry, the citizens of Pittsburgh, not of Paris. Well, AP did a fact check on that and said uh, that that may be so, but Allegheny County, which includes Pittsburgh is not Trump County. Allegheny County voted overwhelmingly for Hillary Clinton in November, favoring her by a margin of 56% to Trump's 40%. The city has a climate action plan. The city of Pittsburgh has a climate action plan committing to boost the use of renewable energy. So I guess if he was going to be representing Pittsburgh, not Paris, Pittsburgh wants us to stay in. In fact, Pittsburgh Mayor Bill Peduto, who is a Democrat, has been an outspoken supporter of the Paris Accord. He tweeted after Trump's announcement that as the mayor of Pittsburgh, I can assure you that we will follow the guidelines of the Paris Agreement for our people, our economy and future. Peduto also noted in another tweet, fact, Hillary Clinton received 80 percent of the vote in Pittsburgh. Eighty percent. Pittsburgh stands with the world and will follow Paris Agreement. So if, in fact, uh, he was you know, elected to represent Pittsburgh, he don't sound like he's representing Pittsburgh. <laughs> uh, the Hill also notes, by the way, for what it's worth, that uh, Trump also referenced uh, Youngstown, Ohio, in his speech and Detroit in his speech as cities that he's prioritizing by withdrawing from the agreement. Well, Hillary Clinton uh, won each of those counties as well, reportedly, by very, very wide margins as well. So he doesn't seem to be representing any of those people. Now, Des, as you noted yesterday, immediately after the announcement, the leaders of Germany, Italy and France, that'd be Angela Merkel, Paoli, Paolo Gentiloni and Emmanuel Macron, they issued a, an unusual joint statement issuing regret for the U.S. decision, quote, to withdraw from the universal agreement, universal agreement on climate change, describing its momentum as, quote, irreversible and a pact that, quote, cannot be renegotiated, as Trump has called for. They went on to urge uh, other countries to speed up their action to combat climate change. That's good. And they promised to step up efforts to support developing countries, in particular the poorest and most vulnerable in achieving their mitigation and ad adaptation goals. Now, that was following Trump's declaration that the U.S. would no longer contribute 
to the global so-called Green Climate Fund. Desi Doyen, what is the Green Climate Fund? The Green Climate Fund is a fund set up through the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change. That's the treaty that everybody signed on to in 1992 Mm -hmm. that acknowledges that people in developing countries and in the poorest countries just don't have the resources. I mean, there's a billion people in the world who don't have access to electricity right now Mm -hmm. because the fossil fuel industry has not built a grid out to them. So to help these people who are trying to be lifted out of poverty by by their countries like in India and in Bangladesh, the Green Climate Fund was supposed to be all the rich countries who have benefited so greatly from the use of fossil fuels from and the from use polluting of dirty the world. fossil fuels yeah, for and polluting all of the these world. decades. Yeah. And causing this problem that yeah. is going to hit the poorest countries first and worst, this was supposed to be a fund to help them leapfrog over the development phase of fossil fuels and instead go straight to renewable energy technology, which costs money, and give them the money to do that and help them also with adaptation for floods and heat waves and agriculture and wildfires, essentially to help them adapt to what's going to come and what's going to hit all of us, but it's going to hit them the worst. To adapt to the menace and danger that we, uh, rich countries around the world, have actually caused to help and even the score. And continue to cause. And we, we uh, I think we had committed something like $3 billion yes, so far. Yes, the United States one. individually had yeah. committed $3 billion. Obama was able to appropriate $1 billion just from his own from uh, his own executive authority through the State Department. But Trump has canceled the remaining $2 billion. So on Friday... That's the, what he regarded as billions and billions and billions and billions of dollars. Right. Yeah. Now, just remember, he wants to raise the military budget by $57 billion every year. So this would be kind of a drop in the bucket when it comes to that. Also, the military and the State Department believe that U.S. aid is actually a force for good. It helps other countries see us as the good guys and want to work with us when we say, hey, maybe you could uh, clean up your human rights problems. So much and for stuff that. like that. Yeah. Right. So when with this Green Climate Fund, with the United States now temporarily, hopefully coming out of it, European Union and China on Friday announced that they were going to do their best to raise the money and make up for the gap of the United States reneging on its commitment. Making up for us. Uh, yes. yes. Other than that, making America great again. French President Emmanuel Macron took to, uh, to to television actually after the announcement uh, last uh, at night after it was after he uh, Trump spoke at the White House to make his own announcement his own statement in both French and English directing his comments in part to American scientists and clearly based on his closing line here in English this uh, he was directing his comments straight to Donald Trump à tous les scientifiques To all the scientists, engineers, entrepreneurs, and engaged citizens who are disappointed by President Trump's decision, I say this. You'll have a second home in France. Come here and work with us. Work on concrete climate solutions. Tonight, the United States turned its back on the world, but France will not turn its back on Americans. France will not give up the fight. I reaffirm clearly that the Paris Agreement remains irreversible and will be implemented, not just by France, but by all the other nations. Because wherever we live, Whoever we are, we all share 
the same responsibility. Make our planet great again. <laughs> Make our planet great again. Uh, thank you, as Prime Minister of our President, President, president yes. of, of France, uh, Emmanuel Macron. And by the way, how often do you hear uh, the French people saying, France will not give up the fight? <laughs> So right there, alone, we have already made our, our planet at least greater than it was. Uh, so that was uh, from around the world. Back here at home, the decision was also roundly criticized by the CEOs. And you would think that uh, Donald Trump would give a damn about that. But no, apparently not. Uh, CEOs of tech companies like Google, Apple, Microsoft, Facebook, they all issued statements essentially condemning what Trump had done here. And even uh, members of Trump's own presidential council, economic, what is it called? The President's Strategic and Policy Forum. Even those people uh, spoke out, including, uh, well, you had mentioned, Des, on the show, Lloyd Blankfein, the CEO of Goldman Sachs. Right. Um, where he led the firm along with Trump economic advisor Gary Cohn, who's, who's still uh, in the administration. Um, he took to uh, to Twitter for the first time ever, said today's decision is a setback for the environment and for the U.S.'s leadership position in the world. Uh, but on the president's commission here, Elon Musk, the CEO of Tesla, he's worked closely with Jared Kushner on several of uh, Kushner's key initiatives. He resigned from the president's Str strategic and policy forum, this White House advisory panel. He issued uh, a statement on Twitter, said, am departing presidential councils. Climate change is real. Leaving Paris is not good for America or the world. And Elon Musk wasn't the only one. Robert Iger, the C CEO of Disney, put out a statement on uh, Twitter as well, I believe, said, as a matter of principle, I've resigned from the president's council over the Paris Agreement withdrawal. Good for him. Now, you know, who we haven't heard from uh, much uh, lately. Uh, the guy who uh, helped shepherd this deal through the U.N. over the past few years. This uh, deal had been in the works for 20 years, but uh, right. President Obama helped get it over the finish line. He issued a statement uh, without mentioning tr Donald Trump by name. Well, then Trump won't read it. He, well, that's true. Uh, but it was a fairly sharp rebuke. Uh, he says, I'll read this in full here since we haven't heard from him at all. A year and a half ago, the world came together in Paris around the first ever global agreement to set the world on a low carbon course and protect the world we leave to our children. It was steady, principled American leadership on the world stage that made that achievement possible. It was bold American ambition that encouraged dozens of other nations to set their sights higher as well. And what made that leadership and ambition possible was America's private innovation and public investment in growing industries like wind and solar. Industries that created some of the fastest new streams of good-paying jobs in recent years and contributed to the longest streak of job creation in our history. Simply put, he said, the private sector already chose a low-carbon future. And for the nations that committed themselves to that future, the Paris Agreement opened the floodgates for businesses, scientists, and engineers to unleash high-tech, low-carbon investment and innovation on an unprecedented scale. The nations that remain in the Paris Agreement will be the nations that reap the benefits in jobs and industries created. I believe the United States of America should be at the front of that pack, he said. 
He concluded, uh, President Obama uh, concluded by saying, but even in the absence of American leadership, ouch, even as this administration joins a small handful of nations that reject the future, I'm confident that our states, cities, and businesses will step up and do even more to lead the way and help protect for future generations the one planet we've got. That was the statement from President Barack Obama on the Paris Climate Agreement and uh, Trump's decision to leave it. Indeed, states are stepping forward. I mentioned uh, some of those comments from the uh, mayor of Pittsburgh, uh, but also... um, Dozens of mayors, uh, 68 mayors representing 38 million Americans put out a statement immediately afterwards uh, saying that they will adopt, honor and uphold the commitments to the goals enshrined in the Paris Agreement. We will intensify efforts to meet each of our city's current climate goals, push for new action to meet the one and a half degree Celsius target of the Paris Agreement and work together to create a 21st century clean energy economy. We will continue to lead. We are increasing investments in renewable energy and energy efficiency. We'll buy and create more demand for electric cars and trucks, increase our efforts to cut greenhouse gas emissions, create a clean energy economy, stand for environmental justice. And if the president wants to break the promises made to our allies enshrined in the historic Paris Agreement, we'll build and strengthen relationships around the world to protect the planet from devastating climate risks. The world cannot wait, and neither will we. That was a statement from 68 mayors representing 38 million Americans. Uh, They weren't the only ones. The U.S. Conference of Mayors, which is a nonpartisan organization of of cities with populations over 30,000. So that's some 1,400, was it 1,408 such cities. The U.S. Conference of Mayors say they strongly oppose Trump's withdrawal. Uh, they put out a statement, uh, Phoenix Mayor Greg Stanton, who is a Democrat, but uh, hardly a, uh, a lefty uh, blue town, Phoenix, Arizona. <laughs> He's chairman of the conference's environmental committee. He said in a statement, the U.S. Conference of Mayors is a strong proponent of the need to address climate change, and we support the Paris Agreement, which positions the world's nations, including the United States, to be energy independent, self-reliant and resilient. He added a thriving economy and reducing greenhouse gas emissions are compatible by focusing on new technology, investing in renewable fuel fuel sources and increasing our energy efficiency. And I'll tell you what, if you drive around Phoenix today, boy, howdy, do you see a lot of uh, solar panels on roofs all over that city? Because, you know, they got a little bit of sunshine in uh, in Phoenix, Arizona. In December of 2015, by the way, 464 mayors from 115 countries gathered in Paris to affirm their commitment to addressing climate change. So... The world over is uh, condemning what Donald Trump has done. Uh, Does that matter to Donald Trump? Uh, Is that why maybe he did it in the first place? Uh, I don't know. I'll have a little bit more to say on this, uh, hopefully uh, later in the show. But I know Craig Holman is standing by. So let's take a quick break and come back with that. And uh, Donald Trump's swamp. I'm Brad Friedman. This is the Bradcast. Don't go away.
Hi, this is Desi Doyen from the Green News Report and the Bradcast, both brought to you without corporate or political influence. Why? Because we rely on you to help keep us completely independent. Please drop by bradblog.com donate today and help us stay on your public airwaves. That's bradblog.com donate. You'll thank yourself later. I'll thank you now. Follow where the money goes. Follow where the money goes. Follow where the money goes. God knows we're trying. Welcome back to the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from Bradblog.com. This White House doesn't make it easy. In case there were any questions about Trump's repeated pledge to drain the swamp, which he still uses, incredibly enough. Uh, There was this this past week from The Washington Post's Matea Gold. She writes, the White House disclosed Wednesday evening that it has granted ethics waivers to 17 appointees who work for President Trump and Vice President Pence, including four former lobbyists. The waivers exempt the appointees from certain portions of ethics rules aimed at barring potential conflicts of interest. In letters posted on the White House website, the White House Counsel's Office wrote that the waivers are in the public's interest because the administration has a need for the appointees' experience and expertise on certain issues. Among the high-profile figures who received waivers from the White House is uh, Chief of Staff Reince Priebus and Counselor to the President Kellyanne Conway, who were both permitted to engage with their former employers, in uh, Reince Priebus's case, that would be the Republican National Committee, uh, or their clients. In addition, an undated blanket waiver was issued to all executive office appointees to interact with news organizations, a move, for example, that gives chief strategist Steve Bannon permission to communicate with Breitbart News, the right-wing website he used to run. The rate at which the Trump White House has handed out waivers is far faster than that of the Obama administration, writes Gold. They issued just 17 exemptions for White House appointees, but that was over eight years. But it's even worse than that. As the Post's Philip Bump notes, the Trump administration has also not been shy about hiring individuals who were once registered as lobbyists with the federal government. Data provided to The Washington Post by the liberal PAC American Bridge details the extent to which former lobbyists have made their way into the administration. 20 work for the executive office. 20 in the executive office of the president itself, including four so-called super lobbyists, ones who represented at least 10 different companies or organizations before coming to work for the government. What's more, they write, of the 74 lobbyists identified by American Bridge, 49 work for agencies that they used to lobby his own personal swamp, if you will. Robert Weissman, president of the nonpartisan good government group Public Citizen, said in a statement following the so far released waivers, for the Trump White House, even its own highly touted ethics rules are no more than an inconvenience to be waved aside if they interfere with corporate business as usual. The raft of waivers signify both the corporate takeover of the government and the Trump administration's utter disregard for ethical standards, says Weissman. 
from an administration that evidences contempt for conflict of interest standards and seems bound and determined to be remembered as the most corrupt in American history, there's every reason to expect more of the same. The controlling example, says Weissman, is indeed set at the top. Joining us now to discuss this, what it means, is Craig Holman. He serves as Public Citizens Capitol Hill lobbyists. Oh, he's a lobbyist on ethics, lobbying, and campaign finance rules. Holman is an expert on campaign finance reform, governmental ethics, lobbying practices, and the impact of money in politics at Public Citizen, which is a national nonprofit advocacy organization that has been standing up to corporate power and holding government accountable for 45 years. Craig Holman, welcome back, sir, to the broadcast. I'm glad to be here. Thanks for inviting me. Uh, you bet. It it sort of feels like this administration has been in place for 45 years, to be frank. Uh, but to be fair here, Craig, uh, other administrations, including the Obama administration, have both issued these types of waivers that allow their uh, the their elected officials to you know to work around the ethics. Uh, what do we call them, ethics rules, that uh, guidelines that have been put in place. So other uh, administrations, like the Obama administration, has done this. They've hired lobbyists as well. So is, is this, Craig, a legitimate case of, you know, both sides do it? Uh, or is there something different about the Trump administration waivers and, and lobbyists as you see it? There is a sea change of difference between the Obama system and the Trump system. I want to emphasize, uh, you know, Obama really began the process of setting up an ethics executive order Mm -hmm. and trying to restrict uh, the revolving door and limit the number of lobbyists that come into the the administration. And those that did come into the administration could not join an an agency that they had lobbied. So he had a series of of very strict ethical uh, ethical rules Mm -hmm. in place. He would issue a waiver, but set up a very tough legal standard. As a result, he issued very few waivers throughout the entire eight years. It had a tough legal standard where uh, it it had to be demonstrated that the appointee, no one else could do the appointee's job as well as that particular person. And Mm. if he couldn't find someone else to do the job, Obama then would issue a waiver, but he did very few. Uh, what we saw in the Trump administration, and by the way, uh, getting these waivers was like pulling teeth to uh, get Trump to finally uh, disclose the waivers. To release what them. Thought, they, uh, theoretically, they had these waivers already done, but they, they didn't want to release them. Is that what it was? Oh, I don't believe that for a minute. I really don't believe they had these waivers done. What mm. we've seen in the Trump administration, first of all, We were trying to get Trump to hang on to some sort of ethics executive order similar to what Obama had, Mm -hmm. and Trump would not respond to us. Uh, And then finally, out of the blue, on a Saturday night, uh, two weeks into the Trump administration, Trump suddenly issues an ethics executive order that borrows somewhat from what Obama had set up. Mm -hmm. You know, so I'm delighted. But then I start reading some of the details of his ethics executive order, and one of the main things he did was he changed the criteria for issuing waivers. He eliminated any criteria for issuing waivers. So instead of having that tough legal standard that Obama had, Trump may issue a waiver for anybody for any reason at any time whatsoever. 
And this is exactly what we've seen. And then he went a step further, by the way, Brad. And he would not disclose the waivers. Mm -hmm. So we had no idea what was going on. We saw people like Shahira Knight, who was a uh, lobbyist for Fidelity on Retirement Issues, stepping into the White House and being the special advisor on retirement issues, which would appear to be a violation of the ethics executive order. But was she issued a waiver? We didn't know. So we're literally banging at the door of the White House saying, what's going on? Is that and one Is that one of the waivers that re- was released for her, or that, has that one not been released yet? No, that is one of the waivers that have been released. Uh-huh. Finally, we got these waivers released because the Office of Government Ethics, led by Walter Schaub, mm-hmm. went public and demanded that these waivers be released because none of us could figure out if for some reason, the White House was just redefining the executive order into ways that just don't work, or was were they issuing waivers? So finally, Trump said, okay, on Thursday, I'll issue the waivers. Here's one of the interesting things, Brad. I've gone through each and every waiver, mm-hmm. and almost all of them are undated and unsigned, which means I I sincerely believe that they did not issue hardly any of these waivers until perhaps Wednesday, uh, in, just in order to meet their disclosure threshold for Thursday morning. That, and that's that's what I wanted to ask about, because without dates on these, uh, the, the ethics office charges, well, I'll read from uh, the New York Times, uh, the waiver, the fact that it remains unclear when it was originally issued. In this case, they're talking about uh, the waiver to allow uh, administration officials to speak to uh, anyone in the media. And this essentially cleared Steve Bannon to speak with uh, with the people at Breitbart that he used to uh, that he used to run Breitbart. Uh, the waiver, the fact that it remains unclear when it was originally issued, seemed unusual to Walter Schaub, the director of the Office of Government Ethics, who questioned its validity. He said there is no such thing as a retroactive waiver. Uh, If you need a retroactive waiver, he says, you have violated a rule. Richard Painter, the White House ethics lawyer under the George W. Bush administration, said that backdating these waivers is not an acceptable approach. He said the only retroactive waiver I have ever heard of is called a pardon. Uh, <laughs> and, and and where we get to the core of this, uh, perhaps the biggest difference between uh-huh. the Obama ethics executive order and Trump's is enforcement. Obama had Norm Eisen, who really believed in, in the ethics executive order, and he implemented it and enforced it and fully disclosed any waivers that were issued. Mm-hmm. The person in the Trump administration doing this is Don McGahn, who has built a legal career on evading ethics and campaign finance laws all his life. He's the guy in charge with implementing this ethics executive order, and I know for well he doesn't believe in it, which made me seriously question, was he just ignoring the ethics executive order all the way until finally this disclosure deadline came down on Thursday, and I bet you he was just busy on Wednesday writing up these waivers and not dating him and not signing him, and then turn him over to the public on Thursday morning. And he, by the way, Don McGahn, has his own, I think, uh, ethics issues, doesn't he? Wasn't he uh, with uh, Jones Day, which is still uh, Trump's law firm? Yes, indeed. He issued a waiver for himself. 
<laughs> uh, you know, you, you had mentioned some of these broad sweeping waivers. There's another one where all Jones Day law firm employees who are in the Trump administration have received a waiver so they can do whatever they want. And Don McGahn is one of those, along with five other lawyers. So, uh, I mean, we, we've never seen this. And this is a waiver system that, that just renders the ethics executive order meaningless. Because uh, a they can a, a Trump or a, a, an issue a, a waiver can be issued at any time for any reason apparently under this executive order, but also that it doesn't have to be done apparently in advance. But if it's not done in advance, I mean, is is any of this legal? Because this comes down to you know, are are there actual punishments for violating uh, ethics guidelines, or are these like we're learning about so many other things? Are these simply you know institutional norms that people are expected to follow, but that nothing really prevents someone, uh, you know, especially an administration that wants to destroy long-standing American institutions anyway, that, uh, you know, nothing prevents them from ignoring or breaking them. Is there a, any actual legal issues here? There are legal issues, but Donald Trump's ethics executive order specifically uh, assigns Don McGahn as the person responsible for enforcing the ethics order. Uh, the Office of Government Ethics, Walter Schaub, has no authority to make anybody do anything, and Don McGahn simply doesn't believe in these mm -hmm. ethics rules, and so I don't believe he's been enforcing them. I believe almost all these waivers were just issued to cover up the fact that he's been ignoring his own ethics executive order. But, well, but that's Walter what I Schaub mean. has had to go public to try to get even to get these waivers issued. But that's what I mean as far as, uh, you know, even if they violated these things, they, A, are their own ethics guidelines, I guess, that the president administers himself uh, or issues himself. Uh, and then, you know, who enforces? I mean, if, if the ethics office, you know, just uh, puts out, uh, you know, a, a statement that, hey, they violated the ethics guidelines, well, who cares, Craig? I mean, is there a law? Does uh, who's who's going to go after them? Jeff Sessions at the DOJ. I mean, w what do ultimately these ethics guidelines actually mean? Well, the ethics executive order does have the force of law, uh, and there are supposed to be punishments for mm -hmm. violating the e executive order. But the problem, you've hit it right on the head. It's Don McGahn who's in charge of enforcing the ethics executive order. OGE cannot step in. Public citizen cannot file a lawsuit. Uh, we're not we're not included in that ethics executive order, even though it has the rule of law. Uh, we've got a lawless person who is in charge of enforcing it. I, I feel like so we have that to that leaves us that leaves us in trouble. Yeah, I mean, I I feel like we kind of have to put the, the that phrase "rule of law" into into quotes here. I mean, because if it's not enforceable, if there's nobody. To enforce it, if somebody like uh, Don McGahn, the White House counsel, is supposed to enforce this law that actually involves him, that he is, you know, under the same uh, uh, these ethic guidelines and, and the waivers, then it doesn't actually seem like it has the, uh, the, the power of law behind it. You say that a public citizen cannot sue. Uh, 
I mean, is it really? Nobody? Nobody can sue to force the uh, enforcement of these things? If, if that can't happen, then they don't seem like they actually have the power of law behind them, Craig. Well, I mean, I can't contradict you. I mean, all, all I can say is an executive order does have the power of law. But this executive order does lay primary responsibility for enforcement with the White House counsel, and that is Don McCann. Now, under Obama's executive order, at a similar structure, but it laid enforcement with the White House ethics czar, who was Norm Eisen, who firmly believed in it. And, you know, he, he spent his life in the uh, first part of the administration enforcing that ethics executive order. But we're not seeing that happen this time around. And, you know, I do want to reiterate mm -hmm. this point. I mean, the fact that almost all of these waivers are undated and unsigned really strongly suggests to me that Don McGahn was just sitting down issuing them willy-nilly this week. Mm. Uh, in order to meet the disclosure deadline. Now, is there something that uh, could be done in that regard uh, by public citizen, uh, 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 you know, a public records request to ask about the process of issuing these waivers that might then tell us when these waivers actually were written? Because if, if they were written retroactively, then they seem to be even more worthless uh, than they might otherwise be. Is is there a step that can now be taken to 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 try to get more information about these waivers themselves? FOIA certainly is one possibility, uh, but what we have done so far, what Public Citizen has done, is put this on the agenda. Uh, so now Walter Schaub is well aware that these are undated ethics waivers. The New York Times, as you just cited, uh, did mm -hmm. a story on it. So we've got the press and journalists talking about it. We're talking about it on your show. Mm -hmm. And so I'm hoping that journalists will call some of these people who received the waivers and ask them, when did you actually get your waiver? You know, uh, it, it was a long time ago when, when you first stepped into the administration, or was mm -hmm. it just this week? Can Walter Schaub, uh, the head of the Office of Government Ethics, can he be fired by this president? Yes, he serves at the pleasure of the president. I asked Walter Schaub specifically that question because he's been sticking his neck out. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, since he has no actual enforcement authority over the White House, he's been forced into a corner of just having to go public. He's been tweeting mm -hmm. about problems with the White House. Then he, uh, you know, he will do news interviews. He will issue a public letter uh, to Trump and Don McCann asking what's going on. Uh, on this whole waiver issue, he's the one who sent out a demand, which is a letter that he can't enforce, to all executive agencies, including the White House, asking for copies of all the waivers. And at first, the White House was refusing to do so. Mm -hmm. And then it became such a public issue, because Walter Schaub made it public, uh, that that Trump felt, okay, we've got to issue the waivers. We can't hold out on this one. And... Uh, Yes, Walter Schaub is, uh, for a guy who doesn't really have any authority, he's making a lot of waves. Yes. Yeah, well, he he is, and I guess he's he's sort of uh, like one of those officials, uh, sort of like Jim Comey or the, or the FBI director that the 
uh, the appointment, the term for that office straddles, as I understand it, straddles administration. So he was, uh, Schaub was already in that office under under Obama. He's not actually appointed by Trump, but could be fired by him if he wanted to. Is, is that generally correct? That's correct. But okay. his term also expires uh, in about four or five months in the course of this year. Oh. And uh, my guess would be that Donald Trump will wait for the term to expire, because if he actually fired him, that would be another scandal. Well, and you know how uh, this president likes to avoid scandals, Craig. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> There's a scandal every day. I've never been busier in my job here. I know. And, yeah, I know. And, and in one sense, uh, that should make people like you happy that you got plenty to do. I'm guessing it doesn't make you so happy, uh, Craig. Uh, before, <laughs> before I let you go here, uh, just give us a quick idea. The dangers of having no ethics enforcement. Does that essentially mean um, this president can do anything they want there is uh, no legal authority to stop them from uh, from doing that other than ultimately once again we go back to impeachment and the uh, the political act of impeachment that there is uh, nothing in the way what what are the in other words what are the dangers of having no ethics enforcement the dangers are widespread first of all the the main one that you have already said is that uh, Donald Trump uh, can do pretty much anything he wants to do. And, you know, if he runs afoul of his own ethics rules, he can actually issue a waiver for himself. Uh, so he can pretty much do whatever he wants to do. There's also the other danger that the people coming into the administration, these people are also titans of industry, and they can do self-dealing for their own companies and their own financial interests and their their own employers and clients of, of the last two years and and essentially get away with it. So we not only have an administration, uh, Donald Trump, who can pretty much do whatever he wants, but then we actually have what's called corporate regulatory takeover. The uh, executives and the lobbyists of these corporations are the ones who are being appointed the head of the regulatory agencies overseeing the same corporations. And so that is going to create tremendous problems. I, th this administration is well on the way to becoming the most scandal-ridden administration in history. Uh, no, Craig, that's called draining the swamp, sir. I think you've got it wrong. <laughs> Craig Holman of uh, Public Citizen, a Public Citizen Government Affairs lobbyist. Yes, he's a lobbyist. Uh, you can check out uh, their important work now, I would say more important than ever, at citizen.org. You can follow them on the Twitters at public underscore citizen. And you can uh, follow Craig himself on the Twitters as well, at C.B. Holman. Craig, thank you so much for uh, for joining us here and for the work that you are doing to press these guys. At least, uh, uh, you know, sunshine is, as they say, the best disinfectant. And at least we can uh, add some sunshine to this administration, thanks to the work that you guys are doing. Please stay in touch, Craig, as this story and so many others that you're working on moves forward. It's a pleasure, Brad. Take care. Thank you. Okay, a quick break, and we're back with some uh, some closing thoughts and some uh, some trouble from down under, way down under in Antarctica. I'm Brad Friedman. This is your Bradcast. Don't go away. <laughs> 
Hey, this is Brad. Do you enjoy your non-corporatized, commercial-free Bradcast? Yeah, me too. But we need your help to stay that way. Please consider supporting the investigative blogging, broadcasting, and muckraking that we do here on the Bradcast and the Green News Report and bradblog.com with a donation. It's easy. Stop by bradblog.com slash donate and drop a few dollars in the tip jar. You can make a one-time contribution or an automatic monthly donation of any amount you like. It's easy. It'll take you about 60 seconds, and you'll help me and Desi stay on the air to continue our troublemaking and muckraking without the corporate influence of anyone. Got it? Thanks. Stop by bradblog.com donate to help us out today. Welcome back to the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. Thank you for that, Desiree. I haven't heard that tune in a while. Uh, the saga of the Larson C. Crack. That's what it's called. Larson C. This is in Antarctica. It's a crack in an ice shelf. And uh, the saga of that crack is about to reach its stunning conclusion, writes Brian Kahn at uh, Climate Central. And this has been going on amongst uh, all of this uh, stuff and nonsense over the past week about the Paris Climate Agreement. You know, the planet, as you like to say, Desiree, doesn't really care about politics. Yeah, Earth doesn't do politics. No, it really doesn't. Uh, Physics doesn't care what your party is. No, apparently not. And uh, scientists have watched this rift grow uh, writes Khan along uh, one of the Antarctica's ice shelves for years, the Larsen Sea rift, the crack. Now it's in the final days of cutting off a piece of ice that will be one of the largest icebergs ever recorded. Khan says this is the latest dreary news from the icy underbelly of the planet, which has seen warm air and warm and water reshape the landscape in profound ways. The crack has spread 17 miles just over the past six days. And he wrote this a few days ago. Marking the biggest leap since January, it's also turned towards where the ice shelf ends and is therefore within eight miles of making a clean break off of this ice shelf. The growth follows reports from early May that the crack across the ice shelf had sprouted a branch, further underscoring how unstable the ice has become. The iceberg is on the verge of splitting off and it's estimated to be the size of Delaware, this iceberg, uh, which is almost 2,000 square miles. Once it breaks off, scientists are concerned the rest of the ice shelf could then collapse itself. Uh, a fate that befell Larson A in 1995, Larson B in 2002. In Larson B's case, the ice shelf collapsed in the span of a month following an influx of mild air. And now Larson C is substantially larger than its former neighbors, Larson's A and B. And its loss would be a huge blow to ice on the Antarctic Peninsula. The changes don't just stop with the Larson C crack, however, or the Antarctic Peninsula in general. The vast majority of ice shelves are losing volume due to rising ocean and air temperatures. That has uh, That's helped prime parts of West Antarctica for what might be unstoppable melt that could raise sea levels at least 10 feet. Uh, 
kind of amazing. Uh, global warming, uh, they, they note, has pushed temperatures up to 5 degrees, 5 degrees Fahrenheit higher in the region since the 1950s. They could increase up to 7 degrees further by the end of the century, putting more stress on the ice. Though the changes are happening in the most remote parts of the planet, they're being felt thousands of miles away as ice turns to water and starts to lap against increasingly beleaguered coastal communities around the world, and the impacts will only grow more severe unless carbon pollution is reined in. And that, of course, was the whole point of the Paris Climate Agreement. And interestingly enough, as the, uh, the response... I think has brought more attention, more concern to this issue uh, than anything, anything, frankly, that you've done on the uh, Green <laughs> News report over the last decade. Uh, yeah, it does yeah. seem to have galvanized a lot of people around the world to wake up. I mean, we're seeing for once the American corporate media covering the covering Paris this. Climate Agreement yeah. when you had mentioned a couple of days ago, Media Matters had done a study and said nobody asked uh, Trump about his p opinion and what he was going to do to the Paris Climate Agreement during the campaign, but they had a hundred minutes of coverage on Hillary Clinton's emails. Well, finally, we're getting some coverage of what Trump would do to the Paris Climate Agreement. Yes, after he's been elected president, but there was yeah. zero minutes, is what uh, climate, uh, what uh, Media Matters found, zero minutes spent on uh, issues of climate and Trump's position on it. In the uh, in the lead up to the actual election. So huge failure by the media in the lead up to the election uh, and only him dropping out has apparently uh, led the media to begin covering this issue at all. One uh, point that I want to make here, we were talking earlier about why this was done, why he did all of this, you know, make America great again. Well, it doesn't appear to do any such thing. Josh Marshall over at TPM was writing uh, after Trump's decision to pull out of the Paris Accord. He said the president's decision on Paris is terrible in some ways, all the more so because it was almost certainly driven not by any strategy or ideological goal, but emotion and hurt feelings of the moment. I think he's right on this. He says if Angela Merkel hadn't criticized him after the summit, the G7 summit a week or so ago, it might have turned out differently. So after he wrote uh, that piece, uh, he says that a friend wrote in to say, uh, wait, you don't think that this was about the battle between Trump's nationalist and globalist advisors? Instead, uh, it was driven by a spat with Merkel. Josh replies, says, I told someone today that if you asked me on November 9th, the day after the presidential election, I would have been shocked that it took Trump this long to pull out of the Paris Accord. He ran on doing so and talked about it constantly. But he also talked about moving the U.S. embassy to Jerusalem, which he hasn't. He's railed against Goldman Sachs. Instead, he's hired all of their people. He said he was going to build a ridiculous wall along the U.S.-Mexico border. That hasn't happened. He did and said a million other things that he promptly forgot about or came up with some excuse for not doing. There's always been a core of advisors that wanted this out outcome, says Josh. But if not for the events of the last few weeks, I think we'd have remained in the Paris Accord, he says. Trump got into a growing fight with Europe. He met with and got disrespected and criticized by the leaders of NATO and the EU. He got mad. Both Merkel, Angela Merkel, and uh, Emmanuel Macron of France spoke about him as a bully and a child. 
Macron had has happily spoken publicly about overmanning Trump when they met in person. That handshake moment. This isn't about climate and it isn't about Trump's base, he says. It's about sticking to the sticking it to the leaders of Europe. That's what gave the Bannonites, the Steve Bannonites, the edge, he says. That and one other thing. Trump is scared. He's entering a widening gyre of political crisis over Russia. He's scared and he's angry and he needs friends, so he's more and more likely to hug his base, both the most aggressive advisors and the most committed supporters. Indeed, we can take it as a given that as the Russian scandal crisis deepens for Trump, he will become more aggressive and more extreme in his policies, both to maintain his emotional equilibrium and reinforce his backing from a shrinking base of supporters. This is as certain as night follows day. He says this is about wanting to lash out at enemies, strike a blow in a context in which people can't easily fight back and try to assert control over a situation that feels increasingly out of control. Rewrite the last four weeks, Josh says. Leave Trump less angry and threatened. I'm confident the U.S. would still be in the Paris Accord. That's how he operates. The entire outcome was driven by the president's current besieged emotional state. I got to say, I agree. Uh, you know, I was wondering why he would do this. Uh, you know, we've talked about the idea of Trump seeing the world as a as a reality show or seeing his presidency as as a reality show. I don't think that 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 that, that is exactly it. So, you know, notice how many times Trump talked during his uh, White House uh, speech on this uh, about the world is laughing at us and that they won't be laughing at us anymore, he said during the speech. That's what this is about. They're not laughing at us. They're not laughing at the U.S. They're laughing at him. And he knows it. And he's angry. And he's scared. And he's trying to reassert control here somewhere. So, uh, Des, you've talked about this uh, presidency as a reality show. I'd say it's more like pro wrestling. (laughs) At this point, uh, he's playing the bad guy, the villain, who seems to enjoy breaking everything and forcing everyone to boo him. That's who he he seems to be becoming now. And and what that means for someone with their hands, someone like him with their hands on the levers of of the world may be very frightening, particularly, as Josh says, as uh, things continue to devolve for him. And uh, it appears that they almost certainly will. This just in from AP, the special counsel investigating possible ties between Trump and uh, and Russia has taken over a separate criminal probe involving former Trump campaign chair Paul Manafort and may expand his inquiry to investigate the roles of the attorney general, Jeff Sessions, and the deputy attorney general, Rod Rosenstein, in the firing of FBI director James Comey, according to the AP. So this may now expand to the attorney general himself. Yes, uh, this thing is going to get worse before it gets better. We'll leave it on that cliffhanger. Until next time, my thanks to Desi Doyen, our producer, to my guest today, Craig Holman of Public Citizen, and to you for spending a portion of your day or night with us. It is, as ever, greatly appreciated. If you missed any portion of today's show, you can download it for free anytime at bradblog.com. While you're there... 
I'll thank you to stop by bradblog.com slash donate to help us continue to do what we try to do every day here on your public airwaves. You can drop me email if you like. I'm bradcast at bradblog.com. And on the Facebooks and the Twitters, I hope you'll follow us and share us far and wide. I am simply the Brad Blog. That's it. Until we meet again, I'm Brad Friedman. Good luck, world. 